uh, we're in the 13th week of, of a sermon series uh, on the biblical book of Daniel. And we've been uh, walking through this book of Daniel, uh, unpacking the theme of identity formation. How are our identities being formed daily? We will touch upon that theme today too, uh, but that is not the main theme for today. Uh, and I'll tell you what the main theme for today is just a little bit uh, as soon as we finish reading uh, the Bible that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. I'm going to read uh, from the book of Daniel chapter 5. We've spent two weeks already looking at Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to close this chapter this week, moving on to Daniel chapter 6 the next week. Uh, I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 6. That's going to give us some context. And then verses 23 to 28, which is the heart of what we are looking at this morning. It's, the verses will come up for us on screen. Uh, Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from, a, from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles... Uh, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on, a, on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. We saw over the last couple of weeks, nobody could read writing on the wall and they had to go in and bring Daniel. And Daniel was able to read the writing on the wall. Passage, the second part we're going to be uh, reading. I think we'll go on to the other mic. There's some problem with this here. Yeah. I can't fix that now. Can I have the other mic? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And that's the second part of the verse, verses 23 to 28. And this is Daniel interpreting uh, the writing on the wall for this King Belshazzar. Need some more volume on the monitors, please. You have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of gold and silver and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, parson. Here's what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Today, I'd like to zoom in on, on one of the central themes of this passage and, passage and, and focus on it uh, without spending too much time on, on the historical background, which we, we've been doing over the last few weeks. Uh, 
Verse 26, that's the key in the passage. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Judgment, the judgment of God is the central theme of this passage. God judges all men and women. God's final judgment is the ultimate writing on the wall for all of us. On that day at that fake party, as we've been seeing, God judged King Belshazzar. And God will judge every single one of us. So this sermon is not a pure exposition of this passage, uh, but this sermon is more a teaching on the doctrine of, of judgment, which is really the central theme of this passage. So allow me to draw three <coughs> broad ideas on the theme of judgment. The first thing I want to look at is, is that we all pretend that God won't judge us. The second thing we want to look at is that God will judge us. The third thing, in the light of these two realities, how then shall we live? We all pretend that God won't judge us, but God will judge us. How then shall we leave? Let's, let's dive into the first thing. We all pretend that God will not judge us. You know, in this chapter, um, Belshazzar, the evil king of Babylon, was pretending that God will not judge him. If you actually think about it, what he did is crazy. We saw two weeks ago that when Belshazzar threw this party, the Medo-Persian army had laid siege on Babylon. The enemy was at the gate. And God, through an extraordinarily supernatural act, had warned Belshazzar through the writing of that hand that appeared from nowhere and wrote on, on, on the wall. The writing on the hand interpreted by Daniel warned him that he was found wanting. He has been judged. His days are numbered. What would you expect him to do? I would have expected him to, to, to beg God and plead for mercy. But there's no evidence that this king does that in that chapter. What, we, what he does instead is, is really crazy. If you look at verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Rather than repent, this king was making a fake power statement. He was living in crazy, stupid denial. God has just told Belshazzar that he was going to judge him and punish him. And this foolish king, instead of repenting and begging God for mercy, is rewarding Daniel and pretending to be king. He was just making a fake power statement. I'm beginning to see that, that myself, uh, myself first, and most other people also live in denial that God will one day judge every one of us. We all like to pretend that God will not judge us. And, and let me try and explain why I just said what I did uh, by talking to three groups of people. Uh, I, I perhaps, I imagine perhaps are all here. The first group of people I want to talk to are who we call explorers, people who are curious about Jesus. This is probably your first, second, or third time in a church. Or you've been coming for a few weeks and you're in the process of checking Jesus out. 
uh, you're trying to understand who this Jesus is. You're forming your views upon Jesus, about Jesus. Uh, this group of people, uh, I, I would imagine, may not really have a strong conviction about this final judgment by God of every human being. We, we prefer to ignore this idea. We generally don't think about, that's definitely not one of our favorite pastimes, to think about whether God's going to judge the world or, or not. In fact, some of us, all our lives, we may never ever have even entertained this thought about the possibility that God will one day judge us. Well, if, if that's you here, I, I'm really sorry. I have spoiled that little fairy tale world of yours. After today's talk, you'll have to think about God's judgment at least once. And those of us who are explorers, uh, we might be thinking um, that God only judges bad people, terrorists, thieves, murderers, rapists, uh, these are the people that God will definitely judge. But us, uh, we're reasonably decent, uh, good, um, generally good citizens. We vote, uh, we pay taxes, uh, and we believe God doesn't judge people uh, like us. And I hope this sermon makes you question that assumption. The second category of people that I want to talk to uh, are believers or followers of Jesus. Now, all of us, we do believe that God will one day judge everyone in this world, we don't really live in line with this belief. We push the truth about the judgment of God to the back of our heads and conveniently forget it most of the time. To illustrate this, think of the last time when somebody really hurt you or, or wronged you or attacked you or maligned you. How would we feel at, at, at such moment? How did we feel at that moment? Angry. God, why did you allow this? God, how can you allow him to get away with this? God, why are you sitting quietly and doing nothing? We've all asked these questions of God, have we not? <clears throat> all of these questions give away our unbelief that God will one day judge everyone in this world. When we are voicing, when we are articulating these questions, we're saying, God, I don't believe you're going to judge him eventually. I demand that you judge this person here and now. In some ways, we don't really believe God will judge us. Another example, in, and I'm sure in some way or the other, all of us, we sin willfully and deliberately. Uh, some of us even plan the enjoyment of some, such sinful pleasures. And in those moments, we are pretending God will not judge us. We all pretend that God will not judge us. Now, I, I, I would imagine that I'll get some pushback at this, at this point in time. You know, some of you might say, I don't think that's true, Anand. You're being too harsh on us. I definitely believe and I live as if God, God judges me. What you're saying is, is not true. If that's what you're experiencing in your mind right now, let me help you with a, with a simple diagnostic tool, which is going to help each of us assess for ourselves <clears throat> on where we stand in terms of our actually living out in the light of our faith about this judgment. Very simple diagnostic tool. Imagine with me that we all know for absolute 
for absolutely in an absolutely certain way that Jesus is going to come back next Sunday. Imagine that we know with without with no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is going to come back next Sunday. Let's imagine that God himself comes and tells that to us. The simple diagnostic I'd like to ask us is will our life how will our life next week look different from the life we lived last week? How will our life be different? Now if you say my life next week knowing that Christ is going to come back to judge will be exactly the same as my life last week when I didn't know for sure that Christ is going to come back to judge the world, if they are exactly the same, then we are living in line with the truth of what we believe about God's judgment. But if you're feeling the need to make big changes, if you're feeling convicted that, hey, the life I lived last week is not worthy of the gospel, then what I'm saying holds true. And so our view of God's judgment will shape our identities. If we functionally and practically uh, believe that everything ends with this life, our identities will be shaped only by the pain and the pleasures of this life. But we, if we really, not just at the head level, but at the deep heart level, if we really believe that God's going to judge and there's eternal life after that, our lives, our identities will be very different. The third category of, of people I'd like to talk to this morning are, are Christians who believe in God, who believe in Jesus and all of that, uh, but they don't really believe. We don't really believe in hell. Uh, we don't believe that God can, uh, that a loving God can judge and punish people in hell. All of this talk of judgment and hell, only those weird prophets in the Old Testament, they talked about it. We're in the New Testament time. You know, Jesus has come and he's changed all that. Jesus uh, is love. And uh, this, this category of people, we believe uh, that, uh, that, you know, we, we don't really think much about judgment uh, uh, or hell. There's, there's just one big problem uh, with this line of thinking, which is Jesus taught about judgment and hell more than anyone else in the Bible. In fact, I would say Jesus taught more about judgment and hell more than everybody else put together in the Bible. And that leads us to the second point we're going to be looking at this morning. God will judge us. Even though we may pretend otherwise, even though we may live our lives as if otherwise, God will judge us. Jesus talked and taught extensively about judgment. He taught over a dozen parables about judgment. And he also uh, did several sessions of teaching directly about judgment. And what I've tried to do for us is, is condense most of Jesus' teaching uh, on judgment into four big ideas. First, Jesus taught that God's judgment is sure. Second, Jesus taught that God's judgment will be sudden. Third, Jesus taught that God's judgment will be surprising. And fourth, God's judgment will find some of us in some shames, shame. God's judgment is sure, sudden, surprising, and may bring shame. And that's 
And I want to, I'm going to quickly walk through each, four, each of these four. God's judgment is sure. Jesus taught that, that every one of us will have to face God on the final day of judgment. But there are quite a few people, and we all know them, and maybe we are one of them, quite a few people who don't really believe in this idea that God is one day going to judge every single one of us. And so just for the sake of discussion, let's engage, let's, let's talk about this idea that there is no judgment. What, what would the world look like if there is indeed no judgment? Let's think about that. Let's think about some possibilities if there is indeed no judgment at all. You know, for, for hundreds of years, um, slave traders from so-called developed nations hunted down and captured human beings and sold them as slaves, often treating them even worse than animals. And most of those slave traders in that time, a few centuries ago, got away with it. They lived wealthy, successful, prosperous lives on the profit of trading in human beings without ever being punished for it. If there is no final judgment by God, those people are going to walk away scot-free. Will you be happy with that? Across centuries of human civilization, men like Hitler have not just one or two, hundreds, perhaps thousands of men have committed genocide. They have, they've treated humans wrongly. They've killed hundreds and thousands of human beings. If there is no final judgment, you're going to be walking away scot-free. Are you and I okay with that? Closer home, Kamatipura has 15 to 20,000 women forced into sex trade. I know this because Aji spent a lot of time. She's probably met 150, 200 of these women. And every single one of them, not one of them has said, I walked into the sex trade on my own free will. Not one. Everyone has either been forced into it or they have been tricked into it. And many of these perpetrators, and today the reality is most of these perpetrators are getting away scot-free. If there is no final judgment by God, they're going to walk away without ever being punished, without ever being called to account for their actions. Are you and I okay with that? Let's, let's bring that even closer home. I'm sure many of us, we've had in our families uh, experiences of either our parents or relatives uh, being cheated being cheated of land that belongs to us, being cheated of money that belongs to us, or, or whatever. If there is no final judgment by God, and these people walk away scot-free, will you and I be okay with that? Are we indeed all right if we believe there is no judgment? Are we indeed all right living in a world where there is no judgment, final judgment, where there is no closure? Think about this some more. Imagine a world with no judgment. Think about this. If we genuinely believe that God will not judge the world, how can we even justify having a legal system here that judges men? If we believe even God does not have a right and will not judge men and women, what right does the legal system have? Where do these morals come from? Who decides what is right, what is wrong? And so if we don't believe that God can judge the world, we shouldn't believe in the legal system that judges other human beings. And a world without judgment, without human judgment, will be a world of chaos and, and, and cruelty. 
So when Jesus says that he's going to come back one day to judge everyone in the world, why do we find it so hard to believe? If we really think about it, we are perhaps the first generation that fiercely demands justice and yet also rejects the very idea of judgment at the same time. You see, we're a generation which is highly engaged, which is deeply passionate about social causes. Whenever someone, something like Nirbhaya happens, we are up in arms. We're not going to put up with that nonsense happening in our country. Or when, when someone's killed for allegedly eating beef, our blood boils. Uh, we, we demand justice. But when it comes to us, we're quite slow to own up to our own faults, to our own mistakes, if at all we, we own up. You know, Mumbai, you know, is, is a very socially alive and, and, and you know, engaged city. Uh, the intelligentsia in Mumbai, you know, they, they kind of lead the thought leadership of the country. We stand for a free country. We stand, Mumbai stands for freedom of expression. Voter turnout in Mumbai in the last elections was 54%. And I'm sure this is all over Mumbai. If you actually look at, at these people who are so passionate, us, I'm not talking about others in the third sense, us, we are who are so passionate. If we measure the voter turnout of people like us, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be even less than 54%. We demand justice when it comes to others, but we reject judgment when it comes to us. Don't judge me. Isn't that a, a thought that frequently forms in our heads? Um, we may not, some of us actually voice that up front, good for us. Some of us may not voice us, but we keep thinking, don't judge me, don't judge me. We want freedom of self-expression, do we not? We demand the right to be allowed to be who we want to be. No one should dictate who I should be. No one should dictate what my behavior should look like. I want to be who I want to be. I want to do what makes me happy. It is this people who feel it is us. I'm not again talking about them in the external. It is us who feel like this. It is this people who also demand justice. Who are most passionate and engaging with issues of justice in our society. But you see, we are missing something here. We are missing that we cannot celebrate both justice and absolute self-expression at the same time. These are mutually exclusive. Because my self-expression is going to lead me to do what I feel is right or what I feel good about might actually harm someone else. And so absolute self-expression, I'm not against self-expression, please don't hear me wrong. Please don't tweet me wrong. I'm not talking about absolute self I'm talking about absolute self-expression here. And justice cannot go hand in hand. Any person or any culture who values freedom of self-expression above everything else. Hear me, don't hear me wrong again. I'm not saying self-expression is wrong. But any culture or person who values self-expression above everything else has elevated the self over God. I'm not even talking about judgment theologically here. I'm talking about judgment practically. 
we cannot live in a world where there is no judgment. The world would fall apart. Human civilization cannot hold together without justice. And that's what the Bible teaches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, very clear. For we must all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us. God will surely judge every one of our actions. His judgment is certain. No one can escape it. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, I would imagine that a question is now forming in your minds. Will believers also be judged? I'll answer that before we're done this morning. The second thing about God's judgment is God's judgment will be sudden. It'll come when none of us expects that. And on several occasions, again through parables and through direct teaching, Jesus always kept emphasizing on that. The parable of the servant who was lazy and, and dishonest when the master was away. And the parable of the ten virgins, only five were actually actively waiting. The others rest were caught napping quite literally. Jesus taught several parables to make this point. And the Bible reinforces this point. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, a book in the New Testament for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like a thief. It's going to catch everyone by surprise. God's judgment is going to be sudden. That's how it was in the days of Noah. Only one man knew about it. Third, God's judgment will be surprising. Jesus taught that we will all be surprised at the nature of God's judgment. And Jesus gave us two reasons why we will all be surprised at the nature of God's judgment. First, we will be surprised by who will be saved. Matthew chapter 7, again another book in the New Testament, verses 22 to 23. This is Jesus talking. Many will say to me on that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, this is Jesus saying, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. And Jesus taught several parables on this point, not just one or two, half a dozen. Remember the parable about the wheat and the chaff? They'll all be together, but on the day of judgment, Jesus will separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff will be burnt. Or another parable where he talked about a field where a farmer planted seed and plants grew. And along with it, the weeds also grow, grew. So the plants and the weeds coexisted in the same field. On the day of judgment, the weeds were taken and burnt away, but the plants were gathered up to God. Another parable, again, about many fish caught in a net, all kinds of fish. And the fishermen would go to the net throw away the fish that, was un that were unwanted and less desirable, throw away those fish and keep only the good fish. Again, the parable of the ten virgins. They were all together, but five were in with the bridegroom and five were lost out. You know, the interesting thing is in all of these parables, those who would be saved and those who would not be saved were actually together. They probably all went to the same church. But only... Some of them will be saved. Jesus taught this. I'm not making this up. This is not my idea. It's his. 
The second reason Jesus taught that judgment will be very surprising is this. We will be surprised that the first will be last and the last will be first. Uh, Luke chapter 13 verse 30. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first will be last. You know, I keep joking with Aji a lot. I say, you know, I'm doing all this public ministry. You know, I, I'm doing all the talking from the pulpit. And uh, the ministry you've been doing for the last 10 years is very silent. Nobody ever knows about it. Nobody knows what you've gone through in, when you go and time, spend time with sex workers. So when Christ comes again, Aji, please remember me. You know, please remember me. And, you know, I, I really think that's going to be, I, I'll be surprised. That's true. That's true. It's easy to do public ministry. Standing up there and, and, and speaking, it's easy. But when God comes to judge, we will be surprised. His judgment is not going to be what we imagine. That's the third thing Jesus taught about judgment. Fourth, God's judgment will leave some of us in shame. I promise to answer the question, will believers also be judged? And I will answer that question. I know there's a little bit of suspense here, but that's, that's not too bad. Let me answer that. Yes, believers will also be judged. But everyone who believes in Christ will not be punished for our sins because God has already, be, already punished Christ on our behalf on the cross because Jesus the son of God God himself he walked up to the cross willingly to bear the punishment for every one of your sins and mine genuine believers will be judged but we will not be punished because Christ has already borne our punishment while the verse in 2 Corinthians we read earlier clearly says we must appear before judgment, before God to be judged. That the full story as we look through all of scripture uh, unfolds. Generally, punishment is after judgment. You, you, someone is judged and the sentence is pronounced. But for believers, Punishment has been done even before judgment. We will be judged on the day Christ comes, but the punishment for our sins has already been paid for by Christ on the cross. So we are saved. So if believers will not be punished, where is this question of shame? And the, the teaching of the Bible makes this clear to us. There will be a day of judgment. That's the day this verse in Corinthians is talking about. On that day, we will all be judged for every single thing we have done, good or bad. And every single thing we've done, every thought of our hearts, every word of our mouth, every action, good or bad, will be exposed and laid for all to see and for God to see. Paul again talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. 
because of the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus on our behalf, forgiveness, righteousness will be proclaimed to all of us for our sins. But as believers, how would we feel at that moment? I'm only imagining here. Uh, Walk with me in this journey of imagination. Christ comes. He judges. All of our thoughts, all of our sins are laid bare for the world to see and for God to see. What will we feel? There will be a moment of shame we will experience for the ways we have not lived according to the gospel. For the ways we knew Christ did, died for our sins and yet we took that great sacrifice lightly. For the days when we were indifferent to the love of Christ, we will feel shame. Yes, as our thoughts and deeds are exposed for God to see and for all to see. But in that very instant, as the blood of Christ washes us of our sins, our shame will be turned to gratefulness and worship. On judgment day, we will worship the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins more than ever before. Gratefulness. We will see in all. We will see the full extent of our sins. Since we didn't even know we committed. We will see those sins. We will not be punished. We might feel shame, perhaps for a moment. But the blood of Christ will come and wash away. And this is where, what John encourages us. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Now, 1 John 2, 28. Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, you may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John is begging with us. He's pleading with us. Let us live lives that when we stand face to face meeting Christ on the day of judgment, we will not be ashamed. So that's a quick summary of the four big ideas that Jesus taught about judgment. God's judgment is sure. God's judgment will be sudden. God's judgment will be surprising. And God's judgment will find some of us in shame. One more thought on judgment. I'll quickly move on to the last point and we'll close in about five minutes or so. I'm going to use chemistry to explain the theological necessity of judgment. I've labored on this quite a bit and I feel it's important how many of us, let's face it, how many of us really think and live our lives as if there's going to be a judgment? We don't. And so I'm going to use chemistry to explain the theological necessity of judgment. A chemistry student will tell you that water and oil can never mix together. Because water molecules are attracted to each other, oil molecules are attracted to each other, water molecules and oil molecules repel each other. So if you put water and oil in a jar, and shake it as hard as you can for as long as you can, when you stop shaking and look at the jar, the oil and the water will always be separate. You can never get the two to embrace. So it is with a holy God and wicked, sinful human beings. That is all of us. No matter what we might imagine about God, a holy God can never embrace sinful humans just like water and oil will never mix together. But 
there is one way, and there is only one way to get oil and water to mix together. That is, if you open up that jar in which you have the oil and the water and pour a little bit of detergent in it and, and shake it up, the oil and the water will mix perfectly. Detergent molecules attract both water molecules and oil molecules. And so detergent molecules has the ability to blend both water and oil. Detergent can get oil to embrace water. Apart from detergent, oil and water can never be together. If you think of God and his holiness as the oil and water as, as humanness and all humans and all our wickedness, then Jesus is the detergent who can bring God and man together. Jesus, fully God, fully man. He was sinless, perfect in every way as a man, and yet he died on the cross, bearing God's punishment for your sins and mine. It is through the atoning death and resurrection of Christ as a sinless sacrifice. It is only through this that man can have a perfect fellowship with God. Jesus, only Jesus. Only Jesus can bring God and humans together because only Jesus was sinless. Only Jesus died and rose again to pay for the sins of men. There is no other way, no other way, no other way except through Jesus. Apart from, apart from whom we can be, we can enjoy fellowship with God. Again, I'm not saying this. Jesus is saying this. Allow me to close with the last point. How then shall we live? If we believe in judgment, how then shall we live? There are three ways we can live in response to this. The first way is to live a in a legalistic view of judgment, which is live in fear. And live in fear. Oh, if I don't do this, God's going to judge me. If I don't do this, God's going to judge me. That's a life of fear. That is not a life of faith. That's not helpful. That's not godly. That's not what Jesus wants. The, the other extreme is to live a, in a licentious view of judgment, which is just pretty much forget God's going to judge us. Ignore it. Bury it. Be indifferent to the idea and, and live the sinful life we, we, we enjoy living. Both are wrong ways. But there is a third way to live. And that is to think of Christ Jesus every time we are tempted. And every time we fall into sin. We all struggle. We are not yet perfect. One day we will be. Today, here and now, as much as we are redeemed, we are not yet perfect. We are being perfected. In God's eyes, we are declared perfect. But we are still being sanctified. The third and the right way to live in the light of judgment is every time we are tempted or every time we fall or indulge in sin is to look at Jesus. I want to close with a very simple practical exercise for us. Think about last week. Think about last week. How much 
time and how much affection did we give to Christ last week? Would you actually measure that? Do this exercise as a very objective assessment of where we stand. And ask God to help us grow in the gospel, grow in the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Let us pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that all of us will be judged. And we thank you for the truth that Christ has paid the punishment for our sins. We thank you that you are just, that you will judge the world, that there will be justice, that there will be closure. But you've also given us a way out, Lord, because we could never overcome all our sins by ourselves. And that's why you provided Jesus to pay, pay for our sins. So we pray that believers and explorers alike today, we would put our faith in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.